0: The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Good morning, my name is Sean Farrell. I serve as the college pastor here at Faith Bible Church. I'm stepping in for our beloved teaching pastor, who, if you read his weekly letter this week, he uh, had shoulder surgery on Wednesday. Uh, it was extensive surgery. He was having his shoulder replaced. So it was a pretty big deal, and he is, came through the surgery fine, and he's recovering okay, but he's home resting. And uh, if you would, pray for him as he recovers, and also pray for Jean uh, as she recovers <laughs> with him, as she takes care of him. In the spring of 1519, the Spanish conquistador Hernando Cortez set sail with 600 men on a fleet of 11 ships. They headed out to the New World. There were stories of a city of gold, a fountain of youth, and other priceless treasures that dazzled the eye would make them rich beyond their wildest dreams, and so they got in a boat. And with little more than the possessions they could carry on their back, they sailed away from their old lives for God, glory, and gold. They were friends and family they would never see again. Their homes, their country, their comforts, all were sacrificed as they stepped aboard a ship that took them to a place they had never been. They would be strangers in this new land, learning new customs and new languages. Um, Figuring out what it means to be and to live as aliens in a new and different place. Those high hopes and dreams they had were quickly shattered when they arrived on the shore in America. They hit unforeseen obstacles. You see, the brochure said nothing about the overly hostile indigenous people who would seek to wipe them out, there was no mention of these newfangled animals these deadly predatory animals who would seek to kill them, nor of the tropical diseases that were ravishing their ranks. And so I wonder how long it took for the first guy to say, I want to go home. This is too hard. I don't want to suffer. I didn't ask for this pain. I'm not ready for this kind of sacrifice. I want to go back to the way things used to be. As Christians... We can relate. We too have left behind our old lives. Our testimonies certainly contain that section, what my life was like before Christ. We set out in our Christian lives with all the promises of God, love and joy and peace, hope, eternal reward, but, 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 but too often, like those men, this new life is not what we expected The Christian life is harder. It has unexpected challenges. And we find ourselves standing on the shore as it were dreaming about our old life. This is too restrictive. It is too much work. I want to enjoy the world. I want to give in to these pleasures and these desires. I want to feel free like all of my friends around me. If you're honest enough to admit it, Certainly, you have had these thoughts, I know I have, to wish and to want and to fantasize about that old life. And what's true when we sit to analyze this is that the Christian lives between two worlds. On the one hand, I'm a child of God, I belong to Him, and I want to live for Him. I want to say yes to Jesus and no to self every time. But on the other hand, I want to fulfill the desires of my flesh. I want to look at those impure images. I want to binge watch my shows. I want to be lazy and live for selfish creature comforts. This is the battle that's described in the New Testament. It's a battle against the flesh. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, For the flesh sends its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Friend, this is the Christian life. We are always under tension. Have you noticed that? Have you felt that? We're a new creation, and yet we battle our old self. We're free from sin, and yet we continue to yield to it. And so this morning, we're going to look at the tension that exists in the Christian life. I titled our message, Embracing the Tension. And I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that gives us very clear helps on how you and I are to engage and to embrace that tension. So if you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. And we're taking just a a, a quick break here. We finished our study of the Old Testament. It's been great, yes. With the faithful love of the King, amazing. And in two weeks from now, we're going to start off looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. I can't wait. But today and next week, a little different. Today we'll be in Romans 13, and if, if you know anything about Romans, the first 11 chapters um, are, are Paul's treatise on God's plan for salvation. All doctrine. Then in 12.1, like the hinge that swings a door closed, Paul uses the word therefore and he changes the entire direction of his letter to give us the practical implications of all the truths that he laid out for 12, or for 11 chapters. In light of all that he has done, how are we to respond And the answer in 12.1 is that we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And chapters 12 and 13 provide detailed instructions on what it means to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. And where we find ourselves today at the end of 13 is as if Paul is summarizing everything he said in these last two chapters. Let me begin by reading verses 11 through 14 together. Do this knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of life. Light, excuse me, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. This is an amazing text. It is a wake-up call. It is a battle cry, and it goes to every Christian in our war against sin. The Christian life is not comfortable. It is not easy. And when we are living for Christ, we are living in tension. And again, if I could boil this whole message down to one phrase, here it is embrace the tension. Embrace the tension. And I want to show you how. I want to show you how. Three reasons. The first one how you can live in tension. Number one, you are not alone. You are not, I did this first hour too, you are not home yet. I don't know why I keep saying that. It's not you're not alone. You're sitting around with a lot of people here. You are not home yet. It's right there. Look back at verse 11. He says, do this knowing the time. Do what? Do what? Well, we don't have time, but to live out all that I just told you in chapters 12 and 13 about offering yourself as a living sacrifice do those things knowing the time well what time is it is it reference to the fact that it's 9 56 a.m pacific standard time on august the 13th 2023 no this is speaking about the realm of human history what time is it on the divine clock what time is it in the age of man? Well, we might think this is a pretty good time in the age of man, right? It's unprecedented in the technological, scientific scientific and medical advances around us. Our world continues to shrink as we become more and more connected by devices that interact one to another in even the most remote parts of the globe. You carry a computer in your pocket. People live longer and are healthier. We're sending people into space as tourists. (laughs) There are self-driving cars. I just saw something that said there's a a self-flying car or a flying car that's coming. Just got FDA approval sometime recently. Crazy. Back to the future is coming. Uh, We live in the greatest country in the history of the world. The economy is cruising along. We have air conditioning. (laughs) We have money in the bank. Take family vacations. Opportunities abound in school and in career and in life. We're farm-to-table, we're organic-loving, locally-sourced fanatics. You have your daily routines, you have your specialty coffee drinks, you have your creature comforts, the kids are excelling in school and in sports, and life seems to be going pretty good in this age of man. So what time is it? The time seems to be good and the future seems to be bright, but this is not what the scripture says. In Galatians 1.4, it says that this present age is evil. In fact, in Ephesians 5.16, it says that each individual day is evil. It is so bad that First Corinthians 7.29 says that these days had to be shortened. And First Timothy 3.1 says that things are going from bad to worse. And so those hard, bad times are here. The world is under the control of the evil one. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world in John 12, 29. And the world system he has set up is just as anti-God as he is. Naturalistic evolution, abortion, the sexual revolution are all evidences of his involvement in our world. So what time is it? Look at verse 11. He says there, it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. What time is it? It's time to wake up. It's time to stop covering your head with the pillow and hitting the snooze bar and get out of bed. Now, who is he saying this to? Uh, look back at the text. Is he talking to believers or unbelievers? I would be expecting this to come to unbelievers. But does the Bible say that unbelievers are asleep? No. Ephesians 2.1 says that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. Um, So who's he talking to? You don't need to turn there, but if you went back to chapter 1, to the opening of the letter, just six verses in, in his initial greeting, he writes this. You also are the called of Jesus Christ. I write to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Romans was written to believers. And if we look at our passage, Paul uses the word us three times. Once in verse 11, once in verse 12, once in verse 13. Plural noun. Plural noun. Plural pronoun, excuse me. So who has fallen asleep? The church at Rome has fallen asleep. And the simple reality is that Christians can fall asleep. Are you asleep, Christian, right now? Fortunately, I can see you, and most of you are awake right now. But in the spiritual sense, do you, let's take a quick test. Do you notice the evil in the world around you? Are you broken over it? Do you feel that the sin in your life is not that big of a deal? That it's not really that bad? Are you concerned over the lostness of your friends, your co-workers, your family? Jonah fell asleep on a boat when he was supposed to be preaching. Peter, James, and John fell asleep in a garden when they were supposed to be praying. Christians fall asleep in church all the time. It's the inactivity, the idleness, and doing very little for Christ that defines sleep. Characterized by lethargic, even apathetic, indifferent, and careless attitude, there is no sense of urgency, there is no fire burning. Um, But Paul comes into our bedroom and he is calling us with an apostolic wake up call get out of bed realize what time it is. Why? Look at the end of verse 11. Why? Because salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The clock is ticking. Our salvation is coming nearer. But wait a minute, aren't we already saved? Well, yes, I put this in your outline. Ephesians 2.8, speaking in the past tense, says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And certainly, 1 Corinthians 18 says that currently, presently, we are being saved. And 1 Peter 1.5, looking to the future, says that it is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. And so there is a progressive salvation in the life of the believer. There was a distinct moment that you were saved. The Bible or, or theology, theologians call this Justification. You live in the present blessings of that salvation and there's a future day where you will realize the hope when you are in glory with Christ. But Paul's point here is that you are nearer than the time when you believe in verse 11. You are marching toward that day. Whether you've been saved for 30 days or for 30 years, we're looking to that moment when our faith will turn to sight and our prayer will become praise. And here we are in this middle ground, in this season of tension between the two advents of Jesus Christ. Before his first coming, the world lay in darkness and in sin. He is coming again, and after his second coming will be the full unveiling of glory and holiness and all that is the realization of our hope. But today, you and I live between these two worlds. We exist in a period that theologians call, listen to this one, the already not yet. You and I live in the already not yet. We've been saved from the power and the penalty of sin, but we have not yet been delivered from its presence. You, you notice this, God didn't save you and then like Elijah put you on a fiery chariot and send you straight to heaven, did he? No, he left us here, he put us here, he has us here to fulfill his will, to accomplish his purposes, and to be salt and light to a dark world. Philippians 1.23, Paul says, oh yes, it is better to depart and be with Christ, very much better Heaven is better, but friend, there is still work to do. And to give us a little bit of motivation, Paul says in verse 12, look there, he says, the night is almost gone and the day is near. It's almost over. The day is coming. Look there at verse 12. He calls it the day. Notice the specificity, the definite article. There is a very specific day that he's referring to. That day is drawing near. Acts 17:31 says that that day is fixed by God himself. Matthew 24:36 says that of that day no one knows of the hour of it except the Father himself. And what is that day? James 5:8 says it is the coming of the Lord. In Hebrews 10:37 it says that he will not delay. In Philippians 4:5 it says that he is near. And Jesus himself said, Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and Jesus will be revealed in glory. And this is the dawning of the day. But on that day, he will put an end to sin. On that day, he will abolish death. On that day, every tear will be wiped away. On that day, all suffering and pain and struggle will be finished. On that day, He will bring us home. The nighttime of sickness will soon be over. The lonely pain of sorrow will be gone. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Because this is the day that we long for, Philippians 3.20. We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 John 3, 2 says that on that day we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Paul's point, Christian, is that it's time to wake up. We are five days closer. We are five years closer. Our time is not unlimited. When will you live for Jesus if not today? Young person with energy and vigor and physical strength set patterns in your life today. Be the man of God. Be the woman of God. Fight to know him. Run hard for Jesus Christ. Godliness is not a title given to you at some point when you're older. It is the work of a lifetime. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, it says, for you are all sons and daughters of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Older saint, your days are shorter. The time is moving faster and faster, but the opportunity to be used is now. There is no time to wait. If you're still here, God has purpose to employ you in his kingdom with whatever time is left. Amy Carmichael, that pioneer missionary in India, continued her missionary work even after she was confined to her bed for the final 20 years of her life. She said, I would rather burn out than rust out. Friend, you are not home yet. And the day is coming, but until that day dawns, we live in tension. And Christian, you must embrace that tension. Second in our outline, your war is within. Your war is within. Look at the second half of verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of life. Having gotten us out of bed, Paul now instructs us to remove our nighttime clothing. He says, Take off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. There are two and only two worldviews there's a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. There's a narrow path and a broad road. There are deeds of the flesh and there are fruit of the spirit. There is the domain of Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, and there is the dominion of Jesus Christ, who is the prince of peace. You do not exist partially in one world and partially in another. You are either in the light or you are in the darkness. You are in the battle um, fighting against sin or you are fighting on behalf of your sin. Every Christian stands in the light and yet every Christian still struggles with sin. Why? Because verse 14 tells us we're still in our flesh, and while the power of sin has been broken, it's still very present in our lives. And those same desires that existed before I was saved still exist in us today. That's the tension that we face, and this is the tension we must embrace. There is a war happening within every one of us, And Paul gives us these two contrasting, two opposing, two verbs in this sentence. We are to put off and we are to put on. Lay aside and take on. These two things are there and over and over, these are the commands of the New Testament. To lay aside, literally for them meant to take off a piece of soiled clothing, to put it aside or even to just throw it away. The deeds of darkness, he says, are to be removed, discarded and thrown out of our sinful lives. And so he gives us six of them in verse 13. Six examples, six categories, if you will, um, that are brought into pairs of the deeds of darkness. Let's examine these these each. I put them into the pairs that are there and gave them titles. Maybe it'll help us a little bit. The first we'll call excessive indulgence. Excessive indulgence. He says there in 13, not in carousing and drunkenness. Now, carousing was a word used to describe village festival where there were drinking parties, orgies, and where excessive indulgences occurred. Drunkenness is exactly what it sounds like. It means to be inebriated following the, the heavy consumption of alcohol or to be controlled by wine or strong drink. It is to use a substance to heighten the senses or to numb the pain. Giving your mind or control of your mind to... Um, Alcohol to recreational drugs to prescription pills to caffeine or any other thing. Isaiah 5.22 says, Woe to those who are heroes in drinking and valiant men in mixing strong wine. Taken together, these two words picture a lifestyle of partying where caution is thrown to the wind and controls handed over to something other than the Spirit of God. It is excessive indulgence. And Paul says in verse thing, put it off. The second pair there we'll call unrestrained desire. Unrestrained desire. Also in 13, he says, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. We'll take these together. They mean to engage in immoral um, sexual excess and debauchery or lewdness, any form of sexual immorality. It's behavior that's completely lacking in moral restraint. This is to ignore your convictions and cross lines with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. This is to sleep around, to flirt at work, to cheat on your spouse, to fantasize about a husband who will love you, romance you, and be anyone different from the man you're currently sitting next to. This is to use your phone, your iPad, your computer, your TV as a portal into the world of pornography and sexually explicit material. 35% 35% of all internet searches are related to pornography. When when somebody opens a web browser, one third of the time it is to look and look after look for sin. One third of those searches are made by women. Almost 90% of them are made from a smartphone which means for those of you who have given that iPhone to your child as a birthday present, you have just opened Pandora's box. Porn is the great exchange. It trades the worship of God for the worship of sexual fulfillment. But instead of worshiping in the house of God, you worship in front of your iPhone. Instead of presenting your body as the alt, uh, excuse me, your body on the altar as a living and holy sacrifice, Romans 12.1, you instead have presented your body at the altar of the false god of sex. And like the people in Ezekiel 14.3, you have set up an idol in your heart. And every time you give yourself to that idol, it strengthens its hold over you. And the object that originally promised freedom has now bound you under the yoke of slavery. But the desire is so strong that in the moment of sin, you would trade your eternal soul for temporary sexual satisfaction. Like Esau, you would trade a bowl of soup for your inheritance. So many have traded their undying souls for a fleeting moment of pleasure. It is madness. It is utter folly. But does it not speak to the tyranny and power of this sin? 2 Peter 2.19 says, For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Some take fire into their bosom, hold it closely, toy with it, enjoy it, but all too soon realize that it has ensnared you, that its power dominates you, and its fire seeks to consume you. Do not be like the man in Proverbs 7.22, where it says all at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, he does not know that it will cost him his life. There is a war raging for your soul. The stakes are high and like Cain, sin is crouching at the, des- at the door and it desires to master you. And Paul comes in Romans thirteen thirteen, and he says, lay aside all unrestrained desire. Lay aside all um, excessive indulgence. And thirdly, lay aside all selfish ambition. Those are those final two words there in 13, not in strife and jealousy. These words taken together are the desire to prevail over others, to gain the highest privilege, promotion, recognition, um, recognition or prestige. And when it doesn't achieve that, it resents and has intense negative emotions over the achievements or the successes of others. That was a lot. Jealousy and strife takes place in our minds every day. And just for a minute here, Paul puts sexual immorality along with drunken orgies at the same level as jealousy in your heart. Something to pay attention to. He got promoted. She has a nicer car. They have a better house, more friends, a better Instagram life. It's not just that you want what they have. You just don't want them to have it. Instead of viewing others as fellow members of the body of Christ, we become rivals in our hearts. We compare ourselves to them, compete against them, and when we don't stack up, we wish harm on them. It happens at work when that guy in the office next to you gets a raise or recognition or at (laughs) co-op. You know, my Johnny, well, he just hit for the cycle yesterday. (laughs) He got straight A's again. Uh, Just finished his translation of uh, Ephesians into the Greek language. Um, Koine, not Erasmus, you know that. Um, And, you know, he didn't get to go this week to feed the homeless. They only let him come twice a month. It happens in ministry when someone else Gets that role or position that you wanted, or the accolades or recognition that you feel like you deserve for your service behind the scenes. In every one of these situations, God is no longer at the center, you are. Life is no longer about Christ, it's about you. It indicates a heart that's full of pride, that's focused on selfish ambition. And the instruction, again in verse 13, is simple lay the deeds of darkness aside, be done with them. It's a drum that the New Testament beats over and over and over again. Ephesians 5:11 says, "Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness." Ephesians 4:22 says, "Lay aside the old self." Colossians 3:8 says, "Put them all aside: anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth." James 1:21, "Put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And 1 Peter 2.1 says, put aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. What's the point with all those verses? This is the tone and temperament of the New Testament. It is the focus and aim and objective. Oswald Chambers said it this way, beware of anything that competes with your loyalty to Jesus. My family recently returned from a uh, vacation to Lake Powell. We were on a houseboat for about a week. It was phenomenal. So fun, awesome. Each evening as the sun would set and the temperature would drop and the wind would die down, something would happen. The bugs would come out. (laughs) Those little gnats, uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, Makes me itchy just thinking about it. One evening I walked out onto the rear deck and... I was bombarded on my back, uh, in my armpits, uh, on my arms, in my ears, going up my nose, in the, my mouth, in my eyes. They were everywhere, Ugh, thousands of them. But then I looked up to the back of the houseboat, and there are these two floodlights that are shining out towards the lake. They didn't really want me. They wanted the light, and there were thousands upon thousands, upon thousands, flying and swarming these lights. So I said, I will show them, and I grabbed the hose, and I began spraying the water around the lights, trying to knock them down, I knocked them down by the hundreds into the water. Once they hit the water, they're done. And I would knock them down, and as soon as I stopped, guess what, thousands in the lights. I did this for quite some time, and I finally gave up. They had no regard for the danger, They had no regard for the consequences of their actions. They had no regard for anything but to get what they wanted most, which was that light. And I think too often we are just like those moths. We know that there is danger in our sin. We know that there are consequences, and yet we find ourselves uh, drawn to, uh, even magnetized towards sin. The battle rages in our hearts, that rebel force of lust, the overwhelming power of depression, the intense feeling of anxiety. And Paul says, put them away and be done with the deeds of darkness. This this is that tension. The tension is that inside of each one of us, as we live in the flesh, we still battle with these old desires. And so, Christian, you and I must embrace that tension. John Owen said it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Christian, you are not home yet. The war rages within you and you must embrace the tension brings us to our final point number three in your outline it is because you serve a new master embrace the tension because you serve a new master and this really is the heart of this passage such beautiful words it is the very center of the Christian life look at 14 he says but put on the Lord Jesus Christ it is so simple isn't it so modest, so unassuming. Right here in verse 14 is the precious remedy against all of Satan's devices. It is the repellent to sin. It is the death blow, the chain breaker. In this command, we find the answer to all of our problems and fights with sin. Now, to put on Jesus Christ happens at the moment of salvation, From that place of desperation, life before Christ, you cried out to Jesus as Savior to take away your sin. You called out in faith, saying, I can't do this on my own. Only you can. And you put yourselves into his hand. And he cleansed you from all righteousness. And he took away the heart of stone and gave you a heart that beats, a heart of flesh, and he made you alive in Christ. In Galatians 3.27, it says, For all of you were baptized, past tense, into Christ, and you have clothed yourselves with Christ. We have past hence been clothed with Christ. We have donned his robe of righteousness so that when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ and not our sinful ways. Praise God. But there is more to putting on Christ than just the moment of salvation. Because notice in 14, Paul does not refer to him as Jesus our Savior as he did in 2 Timothy 1:10. He does not refer to him as Jesus our high priest, as Hebrews 3:1 does. He doesn't even call him Jesus, the Lamb of God, as John does in John 1.29. Look back at 14. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses a different title. He gives him the name Master, Owner, Lord. In the past, there was an old master that ruled and dominated and enslaved you. It was your sin and your flesh. The chain has been broken. The old man is dead. You have a new master, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom all authority has been given, Matthew 28. He is the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews chapter 1. He is the one who holds the keys of death and of hell itself, Revelation 1. And he has a name written on his thigh and on his robe, Revelation 19, that says he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. MacArthur says it this way, he is Lord and those who refuse him as Lord cannot use him as savior. It is a futile attempt to hold on to sin with one hand and take Jesus with the other. And so we come to him as Savior, and we submit to him as Lord. To put on Jesus Christ, practically speaking, is the deliberate conscious acceptance of the lordship of the master, the placing of all things under his control, every thought, every desire, every emotion, every word, and every deed. But there's more in this verse than just Lordship. In describing the idea of putting on Christ, Charles Wesley said it is a strong and beautiful expression for the most intimate union with him. John Calvin said to put on Christ means to be on every side fortified by the power of his spirit. Another writer said it is the habitual association and identification with Christ. Do you remember back in verse 13 where Paul said behave properly as in the day? Or back in verse 12, look down there where he said, put on the armor of light. Let's say it this way. Let Christ Jesus himself be the armor that you wear. He is the embodiment of our weapons. He is the source of our power and he is the motivation for the ongoing battle against sin. We are not putting on a piece of clothing. We are putting on a person. His humility, his compassion... His righteousness, his forgiveness, his gentleness, his love, his patience, his peace. Galatians 2.20 says it a different way. It says, I have been, past tense, crucified with Christ. And it is today, now, that I live, not of myself, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 5.24 says it even different from that. It says, now those who belong to Christ have crucified their flesh and its lusts. But it says there in verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to live and have Christ live in me. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to be continually always filled and controlled by His Spirit. (laughs) And so we come to Him because He dispenses grace and help in time of need. Because He promises never to leave us or forsake us. Because in him we have all that we need for life and godliness. Because even in our failures, when we sin in the same things over and over again, he accepts us back and cleanses our hearts. Because he is our hope. And because he's the only remedy for our sin. And so the Lord Jesus comes to you, young man. And he holds out his nail-pierced hands. And he says, take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. And he comes to you, you young woman, and he says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And he comes to you, older woman, and he asks you to dwell on those things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely. And he stands before you, old man, and he says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. When you're tempted to look at porn, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're tempted to drown your sorrows in a bottle, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're tempted to compare yourself to that other mom who's back at the gym four weeks after delivery with the six-pack abs, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. John Piper said, we must fight fire with fire. The fire of lust pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, we will fail. We must fight it with the massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust pleasure in the happiness of knowing Jesus Christ. But this is not where it ends. Because there's one more phrase in verse 14, one more final command to end the section. He says there, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Lust is that strong internal desire that wants what it wants. It is that craving that will only be satisfied when its need is met. You know what baits you. You know what tempts you. You know what you're drawn to. It'll be the first sin you confess when we take communion today. Get it in your mind. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life Is it pleasure? Is it power? Is it possessions? In this verse, instruction in 14, Paul says, Make no provision for it. That word in the Greek is to think about it ahead of time, it is to have plans to satisfy it, it is to allow the thought to linger in your mind. The command here is not to allow the lust of your heart to linger, to give it no ground, no quarter, not an inch. When your flesh asks you, what's in it for me, what do I get? The answer is nothing. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, said, lay siege to your sins and starve them out by keeping away the food and fuel which is their life. Make no provision for the flesh Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better to enter heaven with one less body part than it is for your whole body to go to hell. Take radical action. Sin is not to be trifled with. It is not to be entertained by. It is not to be ignored or downplayed. Listen, the old man is dead and you can make progress in holiness today. So instead, cut off your sin. Get the TV out of your bedroom. Break up with him. Today, stop hanging out with those friends. Get rid of those clothing, that that cloth, clothings, (laughs) wardrobe. (laughs) Take out your smartphone and smash it with a hammer. And when someone asks you why you have a flip phone, tell tell them it's because I love Jesus more than my sin. You are dead to sin. Live like it. Matthew Holst said, you cannot look at Jesus and look at porn at the same time. You have to stop doing one to do the other. A living, breathing relationship with the Savior of the world will drive porn out of your life quicker than anything else when you turn your eyes to Jesus there isn't room for anything else in your heart because he fills it up the psalmist says it much better in psalm 16:11 he says in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore this is a promise there are pre- pleasures. There is satisfaction. There is joy in Christ. He is the pearl of great price, He is the treasure that is beyond measure. And you are created to value Him more than anything else in this world. We need to wrap, but we have seen that in our Christian lives, there's a tension that exists. And I wanted to bring you to a point today where you would embrace that tension. And now you understand from this text that it's because we are not home yet. That it's because there's a war within us. And that it's because we serve a new master that that tension exists and now we need to wake up and go to war. For some this morning, you have never put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've come to church, you've been about all the festivities and things we do on Sunday, but you have never truly embraced Christ as your own. Come to him this morning, he will clothe your nakedness, take your sin away and give you himself. For others, we put on the Lord Jesus knowing that all sin, past, present and future has been paid at Calvary, that we are no longer under sin, but that we are under grace. as he stood on the eastern shore of Mexico, Hernando Cortez contemplated his growing problem. His men wanted their old life back. He sensed that they would soon abandon their mission. With fear of mutiny in the background, he chose an unbelievable course of action. In an act of total commitment to his cause, he sounded a singular order. Burn the ships. Under penalty of death, his men lit fire to their only escape. And they watched as their ticket to their past was destroyed. And there they stood on the shore of the new world with no chance of going back to their old life. They were forced to press on and complete their mission. Christian, your old life is gone. In this new world, there are struggles, there are trials, there are difficulties, and there's often days where we want to give up. But there's nothing to go back to. Our old life is dead. God has saved us by his mercies, and he has set us apart for his mission, and we must embrace the tension. And live for Christ all the more as we see the day drawing near. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? And as I close, I'd just like to read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, focus on these verses, would you? Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Father, we come this morning knowing that we don't stand in our own righteousness, but in that of the Lord Jesus Christ. We submit ourselves once again to Him, and we desire even now to be clothed by Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks and have a great day.